Hello and welcome everyone to another fantastic episode of RFRX. My name is Eric Wells and I'm the support group director for Recovering from Religion. And with me co-hosting today is Rob Palmer and he is a helpline agent and ambassador. Glad to see you, sir. Hey all, um, I hope uh, this is going to be an interesting evening. I, in fact, am sure having read the description. Yeah, I think so too. This is going to be a tough one and we'll give some trigger warnings a little bit later on, but um, uh, it's going to be a good one. We do kind of need to know about this and uh, how to support people who are around us. Well, without further ado, Rob, would you like to introduce our guest? Certainly. So Dr. Mark Eastwood is an executive and non-executive boardroom professional with extensive global governance experience working for companies such as American Express and Rackspace Technology. He's a doctorate in global management and wrote How to Care for Our People. And Mark is a survivor himself of conversion therapy. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. And it's great to be here. I, I am a little worried that this is show number 100. So I'm really <laughs> going to try to make sure I don't fuck it up. <laughs> it's not like it's number 13 or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Mark, I'm so glad you're here with us today. Um, you know, uh, we have had a discussion about conversion therapy in the past, but it's always really, really good to hear it from another's point of view. And um, especially uh, from the, the sound of your voice, you're not necessarily from where I'm from in the United States. You're uh, on the other side of the pond, right? I am. Yes. So I um, greetings from just outside of Cambridge. Uh, in the UK, um, it is after, well, yes, it is after midnight. So, but it's great to be with you. It's great to be with you. And it's such a privilege. So Mark, let's kind of um, hop right into this. Um, would you feel comfortable telling us about your your story, like wh uh, where you came from and the, how you found yourself in conversion therapy and, and how you kind of got out of it? So I think, just to start with, sure. um, as a gay person, I, I have no choice about being gay. Um, mm -hmm. I'm born gay, but I also come from, I come from a long line of homosexuals um, and famous homosexuals. And my great grandfathers that were gay include William II, Edward II, Richard I, Richard II um, of England. And so, um, I don't, I didn't have a chance. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. Well, I didn't also have a chance. Um, and um, these were all um, my mother's family. And, um, and uh, as it turned out, she was gay as well. So I, I didn't stand a chance for being, um, and hopefully I'm going to become you know, another famous homosexual in my family too. Um, so as, as a child, I didn't grow up in a religious home um, until I was about five years old when my mother um, had an affair with another woman, which in the early 1970s was scandalous. And uh, at the time we actually, so although I'm born in the UK and I am very British, um, I happen to be relocated to South Africa. Um, and South Africa is a incredibly patriarchal society, misogynist, um, and has a lot in common with Australia, parts of the US, New Zealand, that sort of English speaking um, countries where religion played a large part of 
the development of those countries and, and how they became, who they became. Um, and, um, and in the early 1970s, Billy Graham was um, the next great thing and everybody was trying to um, be part of that whole movement, very evangelical, fundamentalistic, um, religious uh, movement. But initially I wasn't brought up in that way at all. My mother, as I said, my mother had this um, relationship which was discovered and she decided to go on a pilgrimage to shed herself of her, um, her gay side and, and stay married. Um, and she had a child. And so uh, we then started to go around a few little bits of churches um, until we settled quite quickly on the Assemblies of God. And actually in that sort of really early 1970s, um, especially something like the Assemblies of God were very, very much about um, end times. Um, mm. I was gonna say, even then the Russians were gonna get you because we live in a whole world right now at the moment where that's exactly what we start to think about it, right? Kind of come full circle. But back then um, in within the church, we were taught um, about the end times and the rapture and we're gonna be left behind. And so to um, give my life to God was so important. And so there I am probably about five and a half, six years old and I'm told how to, to um, become a Christian and um, and that I had to do that because otherwise I was going to left, be left behind and my parents were crying because I said Jesus come into my heart. I had no clue what I was doing but my life changed because from then onwards I was brought up in a home where um, the Bible was read every day multiple times. Um, the theology was starting to be built up around me and it was just at that moment when I was entering education and so um, the inquiring mind um, was being taught things that I and I'm ashamed of the fact that as uh, even as a child that I believed things mm. that later on I have looked back and gone sorry how many animals went into that little boat <laughs> two of each kind two of each kind where did the kangaroos come from um but i was just taught all this nonsense and i believed all of it and especially what i believed um and i feel now that i was a very gullible child was that um, i needed to have the love of god yeah and so anything that prevented me from having the love of god was then um I needed to make sure that I'd, I wasn't part of that and I didn't do those things that prevented me from having the love of God. And it, sound, it sounds like then you were kind of feeling even at a very young age that you might have been different than some of your uh, classmates uh, or friends. Um, uh, yes. That's kind of what I'm hearing at this undertone there. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I felt different to other little boys from an, I suppose from an early age. I, must, I was about six years old and my favorite aunt got married and the family were gathering before the wedding. And I said to everybody, oh, when I am older, I'm also going to marry a man. That meant nothing wow. to me, but it meant everything to my parents mm. who a week later put me into football, into soccer <laughs> and, and made me do things 
um, help my father mend the car and do all these things that a, a man does because I had to be made into a man really, really quickly. I remember I must have been about 10 years old and suddenly my hands started to hang upward for some reason. And my mother used to walk up to me and gently move it so that I didn't even sit in a way that could be um, in any way could be um, perceived as anything other than straight. And so there was a stratification of Mark happened. Um, and I think it was out of my mother's fear that she probably saw, oh dear, my child is like me um, and is same sex attracted. And therefore um, she had to go out of her way to mend that and make sure that I didn't fall into the sinfulness that she had. And she thought at this time, from the sounds of it, that it was, it was correctable. Like if you did certain things, you would no longer be gay, as opposed to you're just born this way. And it's including putting you in this position where you have to play sports with men and probably shower with them in the locker room. Exactly. Just, say, just yeah, saying. I mean, just saying. Yes. Yes. I, I, yeah. I, I think I must have been a little bit younger than, than uh, maybe five and a half or something. And I do have it as a memory um, is that we went somewhere together as, a, as my mother and I, and I needed to use the um, facilities. And, um, and in those days, nobody thought about your child going, and even as young as that, going in yourself. And I must have gone in there and been there an awful long time. But I think it was because I was fascinated by the urinal, <laughs> and, <laughs> even at that age. Um, but I remember being escorted out to my mother getting really angry with me. And I'd had no idea why she was angry with me. But I suppose she, yeah, she saw a penis like her far too early for her liking. Um, and that had to, be, it had to be changed and it had to be dealt with. And so really, I must have been about 10 years old onward, really started to put through Pray the Gay Away um, theology. And that how, how old were you? I might have been 10 already when, wow. when, there, were, when there were things. And I, I certainly was told about the fact of, this is sinful, this is sinful, and, and always gays came in. Homosexuals always came into the list. And I think it was always, it was obviously always intended to, but I didn't want to just only talk about that. So I had to be given a list of things and reminded. I mean, that could go on every day. At the same time, you know, all this stuff at Sunday school that's been taught to me. Um, and I believe that it's true and real. So in a strange way, I feel like the history of the world is Genesis and and I believe those stories, not for being stories, but actually being reality. Um, and so I was not only then started to be bullied at school because I'm gay, which I didn't understand what that meant. Um, but then I was started to be bullied at school because I was also religious. Um, so I was kind of double bullied. Um, and so the, the very thing that actually I think my parents were desperately trying to do was was probably driving me a little more underground. Um, mm. But it certainly wasn't do, it didn't have the desired effect, I think, that they, that they um, thought. And then I was 16 and um, I had, um, actually, the boy kissed me. I didn't even, because I was so naive and also incredibly shy as a child. So I, I would never have made the first move, but 
um, he did. Um, and his mother got annoyed and told my mother. And so they thought, well, maybe the prayer way needed a little bit of assistance. And so the assistance then became uh, the use of, pardon me, and the use of medical um, uh, conversion, which is normally electric shock treatment. Um, oh my gosh. Because I was, and because I was still at school, they decided to use, um, to put the electrodes into my mouth. And I forgot about that completely, how they did it. I, I obviously erased it from my memory until about two years ago, I suddenly thought, there must be a reason why I really do not like going to the dentist. And um, yeah, I, I suddenly remembered, ah, hold on a minute. Yeah, that's why I don't like the dentist. It's to do with coming too close and probing, I suppose, in, into my mouth. So it was certainly my first experience of pornography, not the kind that I eventually got to enjoy later on in my life. But um, yeah, it was the wrong kind of pornography, but that was the first time. And I was in very embarrassing. So it was, yeah, you are with a person who you don't know, putting things in your mouth that, um, yeah. And then when you see images, those things either hurt you or they don't hurt you. And this sounds a lot like Clockwork Orange type of stuff. Were you put, were you shown images and then than shocked kind of get like a negative response to these uh, or negative uh, i don't know imprint about these certain images i think that was the intention is that eventually they can they can retrain your mind to Jeez. find what is um, attractive and what is not attractive of course when it's when it's inbred in us that's it's never going to work but you know and I think it's still a practice that's used to this day. It's not something that just belongs 200 years ago um, with uh, Charles Dickens. It actually is something that is even used to this day um, around the world. And, and so it, it was, however, what I did learn really quickly is that if I, if I smiled at the right picture, then there was no pain. Aha. Oh. Uh -huh. And so really, I think when I was about 16, I learned that to tell lies got you something. And so it's something that actually lying um, was, I think that actually, that it was entrenched. That changed my brain at 16 to know how to get away with things. Um, and so the shock treatment didn't last very long. I think it was about a six month period um, in a mental institution. And it was terrifying to go there because the people in there were shouting and carrying on and, and you could hear this because as you wandered off to the cell that they were using for your Jeez. Um, you could hear the inmates of this um, horrible, horrible mental institute. So it was terribly frightening. So as I say, I learned very quickly how to, how to eventually get out of it um, and, um, and pretend uh, that I was now, I suppose, straight. Um, so you were, were you uh, admitted to this hospital for the treatment and you stayed there or was it something you would visit only for your treatments? Yeah. It was only for my treatments, which is okay. why they used my mouth because the electrodes could leave burn marks. So when you go back to school, somebody may see a burn mark. Well, you don't in the inside of your mouth. So it, it's a place that obviously also has sensitivity. Oh my gosh. 
um, but it was done on that was really done on purpose so that I wouldn't have any um, there wouldn't be anything external for other people to notice. Um, this sounds. I was in the shower with all the other boys. Nobody would notice that. <laughs> marks on my chest or my back or something. This sounds so much to me like uh, the, the similar thinking that an abuser would have to his wife or uh, um, or partner or something like that, like um, hurt them and then so they don't walk away with any marks. That's really fucked up. I'm completely. I mean, I think that my parents thought they were doing the right thing for me. I, it took me a long time, though, to really understand how somebody who was suffering with the same dilemma could have inflicted such pain on their child. I mean, yeah. that from and, and a mother. And I, I did, I did wonder a long time. I didn't. I had a strange relationship with her um, for many years. Um, uh, even from then onward, and unfortunately, she died when she was 49, which I'll come back to um, in a, later on because there is a um, significance to when she died and to, um, and to me eventually um, finding myself. Now, before all of, you know, you had mentioned that before all of this um, treatment, you had actually, there was the beginning of the pray the gay away. Do you, yes. in, uh, do you personally feel that that is part of uh, the conversion therapy um, uh, in some sense, just in a maybe not as uh, upfront type of way or painful oh, as type of way. No, yeah, absolutely. And actually it, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was very upfront. So I, I would be um, beaten on the head with the Bible. Um, you know, when they so, say, so if so I was more than it was more than just praying. It was actually physical abuse too. Yeah, exactly. It was it was casting out the demon of homosexuality. So I'd have to be beaten in the name of Jesus, get out, and then beaten on the head. Wait, are you saying that metaphorically, or did they actually? Were they, did they think yeah, they, they were said, performing an exorcism? Yeah, they performed. It. They tried to perform an exorcism at the age of ten. At the age of ten. Wow. I do remember being beaten on on the back of my neck with the Bible, and I remember it being on its side which I mean is devastatingly um, cruel really to a child um, and being hit on the head and on the back and on the shoulders um, because the word of God, I don't know how it gets in you, but anyway, that's a whole nother matter. So um, a, a lot of cruelty used. Um, and, and I know that there are other people who had very, very similar experiences. Um, and then after this, there was a feeling for a little while after I was 16 that um, I was healed. Um, and uh, I showed no signs of being um, with anybody. Well, it couldn't be further from the truth, right? Because that was not what was going on um, then in Mark's life because he was trying really, I was trying hard because the thing is, is that when you've been brought up to believe that you need to have the love of God and that is something that you almost crave, um, I mean, to me, it actually showed, a, a, if anybody was looking in and had been interested, what they would have actually said is that child is being abused, but also that child has some mental health issues. Now, that's what I would see now in somebody if I met them and they displayed some of the tendencies to be um, incredibly withdrawn. Um, I, 
oddly though, I never uh, attempted suicide in any way. But I think had I had the inclination to, I probably would have, um, because my life, it was very cruel. So I'm now living in this, in this sort of, fri I'm frightened at home, but I'm also frightened at school where I'm being bullied for being gay. And then when I get home, <laughs> I'm frightened because I didn't say anything. So I can't even say to my parents, I'm being bullied at school because they'd mm. say why. And if I'd say, because they think I'm gay, then I know that I, they were going to up the, the ante on, um, you know, increase the level of their support um, to make me straight. Right, so then I they was, might say, well, what were you doing that made them think that? Exactly, exactly that. Well, you must, be, hearing... must be you, you must have done something because they wouldn't, they wouldn't know. You must have said something or done something mm. to be able to, um, I'm hearing that you don't, you're feeling afraid of school, you're feeling afraid at home. I'm not hearing that there's any safe place for you to be in, at this time of, in, of your life. And it sounds yeah. incredibly stressful and um, can affect your development, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it certainly did. It had an impact on my education. Um, and it's probably one of the reasons why much later in life, I went and did a doctorate because it was to prove a lot to myself, not to anybody else, but to actually prove myself that I could continue my education. But it really stunted my educational growth because I was, no, I, I certainly was not engaged um, in anything um, other than self-protection. So I had, I learned how to be and how to um, protect myself from other people. And so the best way to, to do that was to be very withdrawn um, and to be, and, and, and I kept me very shy. And actually now I'm, I'm certainly not a shy person, but as a child I was, and it forced me underground and to, um, and to withdraw from other people and to be very alone. Um, and, I, and I never thought that it would ever change. I thought I just need to accept it because, you know, this is what God and Jesus does um, want you to, to be different and to follow him. So it actually, it drew me closer into the church because that was the one place I felt somewhat accepted in. So that is where I then ended up being sucked into even more than just, um, than just being on the edge of it. I then became very fundamentalistic myself. Um, and I, again, about 1617, um, I was I was doing the whole evangelical um, thing of, you know, worship and um, speaking in tongues. I probably can still talk that nonsense that I learned back then. That tells you something. So um, I, I, I got into it because that was my only place that I felt somewhat safe, oddly. Um, and accepted because then I was doing everything that those other people were doing as well. Um, and people would um, come and say things to me like, you, you really are very anointed by whom? Um, and that, so I had this sort of, uh, maybe I had this outward impression that people thought that I was a little bit special. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, but yeah, and so it, it encouraged me even more because that was then the area that I was, um, the most I felt most comfortable in. 
So you really identified, it sounds like, with the the suffering and possibly even the martyr uh, type of feeling um, uh, that that the church can bring sometimes to folks or religion can bring sometimes to folks, Mm -hmm. that you were living a Christ life like life because of your suffering. Yeah. Also the thing that God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. And when he gives you, make you stronger. It's a test. Yes. Yes. And he would never do anything to kill you, but he would take you right to the edge of it. And I, I, and I lived in those, in that time, right on that edge Um, and felt, and, and, you know, there was no self-acceptance because I I was far too, I had no confidence as a person. Um, I didn't know how to do that. Um, we, so, we, so uh, you. Did you have any coll- friends at the time who were that you could confide in or even talk, you know, questioningly about the subject? I didn't. I just it, it was such a it was such a non subject. Um, and then I was just about to leave school and the AIDS academic broke. And I remember being in watching TV and this thing around AIDS came up. And of course you can imagine, right? Here it goes um, around me, my family are saying, my parents are saying, oh, you see, that's God's punishment. Hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I had no chance <laughs> for that moment to go, well, yeah, but you know, but maybe I could be safe. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know any of that. I'd never actually um, had any um, sexual encounter with another male so uh, you know not a 16 and so that became really hard to kind of understand who I was what I was um, and I didn't well I didn't know that I needed to even accept myself because that isn't what I was taught because I was taught that you know that's selfish and that's sinful anyway you've got to accept God it's all about God it's all about Jesus and therefore um, I I was concentrating on that rather than really thinking about who I was and a growth as a person. So it stunted then my, my own development and my own growth. Um, and leaving school, going to university, my parents made sure that I went to university but stayed at home so that I couldn't be um, at, in a college environment away from home and therefore be um, influenced by other people. Mm-hmm. So and, and and they were very very um, yeah uh, what's the right word um, smothering um, of yeah. me. So, and that didn't help with that relationship. And that's it's, it's like, it's, it sounds like intentional or or directed isolation. Oh, uh, completely. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I never ever, and I mean, none of my friends. If I had friends, I mean, if they were boys, they certainly wouldn't be ever the kinds of people who would wear Calvin Klein, for goodness sake, because that was the root of all evil and sin. Um, and we were getting close, though, to actually going into um, institutional conversion therapy. It just wasn't very, um, it wasn't heard of in Africa at that time. And at that time, of course, it was something very big here in the U- in, in, for you in the US. Um, that wasn't something that's sort of going into um, on-site therapy, which some people do do. Uh, it, it wasn't common in the US, in, in, sorry, in, in Africa. And so, um, but I think had it been there, that's actually probably where they would have put me 
eventually after I left school um, so that wow. I could I could be with other people and have daily care about who I was um, and to make sure that I did not stray at all because you know my life you know going to heaven is was everything my family that's all they ever talked about it, it was anything that prevented you from going to heaven had to be cut out and had to be removed because um you know uh, we couldn't we couldn't not be together in the afterlife i didn't want to be with them in like, real life while i was also worried about spending eternity with them. <laughs> um they were cruel they were nasty they were vile and yeah yeah but that's how i that was what i was thinking and so i think there was a lot of naivety to me and um probably not until much later i probably was quite childlike um because of that development just wasn't there because i was so protected i was being protected from my natural self because that was not acceptable to god and it certainly wouldn't get me into heaven how long did this last for you i mean we're hearing 10 year old you started pray the gay away 16 year old um electroshock therapy now you're in college and uh, you're being isolated from the rest of your classmates and the other college members how long did this go on for you so it went on well and so here's the thing right when when we talk about banning conversion therapy um there's a lot of thought out there that it should just be for children because adults can make up their own mind. Hmm. Now that's not true because when you're an adult and you've been grown up in this environment, your mind is already being made up, but it's been made up as your mind has been built on shit and nonsense. And, and therefore you don't have the, um, the ability just to sit there and go, oh, I'll make this decision right now. I'm going to go do that. I'm not going to do this. It's not as straightforward. It's hugely complex because of the environment that most of us find. There's a lot of us, I think, who find ourselves in this position um, as gay men and women. And that then we need to then, you know, coming out of that is so much more difficult. At the same time, I'm now 18, 19, 20, and the AIDS um, epidemic is now out of control. And I'm living in Africa where really AIDS did become um, a huge um, issue, it still is today. Um, and it was a lot around us. So now I'm frightened about that as well. And so I thought, you know what, I just need to um, probably just get married and, um, and have a normal life. And so I, I met a girl and, um, and we got married, I was 25. Um, and I was trying really hard to now be straight. Um, and I was, we were married for just over a year and my mother died and she was 49 mm. years old and it changed everything in my mind for me because suddenly I realized I had only about a year before I'd realized, you know, that lady that my mother was seeing, oh, that lady over there used to make me call auntie, but that auntie wasn't an auntie then. So started things started when I look back and I started then evaluate how did I get here, I realized it was all based on a lie, and that I couldn't live with. Um, and at the same time, I met somebody, um, and David was a uh, Anglican priest. He was married with children, uh, and we had we started an affair. We had, and it was the first time, really, that I'd had. 
um, proper sex with a man. And I also realized that I could, that a man could love me and I could love a man. Because I'd also been taught this thing that it was only lust and sex and therefore there wasn't anything mm -hmm. to it because um, you were never going to be happy. Um, that gay was misleading because gay men happy and happy, no gay man ever was, and no gay woman ever was, because we know that that's so untrue. But that was the thinking at the time. And, um, and then when I realized that I could actually be loved by another man, I, we, we just had this, we had this wonderful affair. And, um, and I learned so much from David. And I was now getting to that point where I was thinking, well, actually, you know what, I'm gonna have to make a choice. And I didn't need to make that, well, I did make a choice, but I didn't need to open the choice because my wife one day said to me, are you gay? And the whole world stopped. It just stopped, my whole world stopped. Time stopped, the earth stopped spinning. And in those, I had seconds, I had seconds to either say, yes, I am, and it will change my whole life. And if I said no, I knew that it would change my life. And I, I made, in that moment, I made the best decision I ever did. Out of my mouth came yes. And we, um, we then decided that actually the, the marriage would need to stop and I would need to go away. Now, she didn't say, are you having a relationship with David? Because actually she didn't realize that. And David then said to me, well, I'm gonna leave my wife and we can be together. No, that never works and it never happens, does it? So <laughs> David did leave his wife, but he didn't come to me. And so I'm now devastated. My whole life has been turned upside down. These people that we were in the church with, my wife and I, they, well, I never, I've never seen them since. I don't know if you even met them, because I haven't met them. <laughs> so they must be out there somewhere, but they, yeah, they would never have a relationship with me. And so it was really difficult then to kind of put my life together. Um, and I made a very bold decision um, that in fact, not only am I now gonna change my whole life, I'm gonna come out, I'm going to get on a plane and go back to London and I'm gonna go live back in the United Kingdom. Um, so in 1995, that's exactly what I did. I got on a plane um, with one bag um, and a little bit of money and um, came to London uh, and then uh, after that, after landing, I actually had a friend that I went to um, university college with and we, uh, she lived in Brighton um, and I went to Brighton not knowing what Brighton was. It's the seaside town, as Nikki will know, and it is gay. It is just from one end <laughs> to the other end. It is gay. And it was the best thing for me. It was the best thing I ever did. Um, and so I could just, I jumped right out um, of the closet, um, shut it, locked it, burnt it down, um, and, and started to live as an openly uh, gay man from there. This, um, well, uh, I, I love that story. It has this nice, um, happy ending, uh, you know, for the most part where you're at, where you're at in the story right now. Um, I would imagine though, with what you had been through for, I don't know, 25 years or so before then, 
that you didn't leave that unscathed that um I, and you know please correct me if i'm wrong but were there some um issues that you struggled with in your head uh going on were did you happen to have any uh form of ptsd from this type of conversion yeah. therapy that you went through yeah i said you did oh fuck it I, it was not that i make it sound like this is wonderful there was a wonderful moment by the way there was when, when the when i got off at heathrow airport and i saw the light it was beautiful it was just <laughs> it was there was something wonderful about being free and and actually being able to be, and there was no preconceived ideas. However, I did not fit into gay society that easily because I didn't have any of that. I didn't, I didn't know what who these people were. I didn't, yeah. And I wasn't somebody who drank a lot. And, and the, um, the Brighton scene is very much around um, a good pint in a pub. And um, I'd never really been to a pub. And so I had to learn this whole, and I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know, um, yeah. And so what I was though, I was really scared about going from one cult into another cult. And my, my brain couldn't quite cope with that. I did kind of initially see it as quite cultish where there's a whole new language, language of the nineties, um, Brighton gay was, you know, Hello, girlfriend. Hello, yeah. Just the language you used—it was so different to me what I'd ever used before, and so it took me quite a long time to unwind from this sort of religious um, background into a gay background, and to make that transition. And I, um, I met some lovely gay people um, at American Express, where I got a job quite quickly after landing there. Um, and somebody said to me, um, I was just chatting and I, I think I told them a bit about my background and they went, oh, you don't want to tell people about that. Mm. Because the UK has a had a slightly different view um, over the same period. And so I wasn't, I didn't have lots of, I did, I couldn't go to a support group down the road because they didn't actually exist. You know, evangelical Christianity didn't take hold here in the UK for another good five, 10 years, maybe. It was slightly behind. And so, um, I, yeah, there wasn't anything there for me. So I just had to learn, all right, now, I remember I told you earlier that um, I learned to lie well. Um, mm. Well, it came out again then because I just never told people I'd been married. Yeah. It never came because if people just would look at me like, but you're a gay man. How did that work? They didn't understand that, um, yeah, that that existed. And, and this was the this was the '90s in the UK. And yeah. if I if my if I recall correctly, it was illegal to be gay in the UK at that time. Um, like that wasn't something that came off the books until the 21st century. If uh, is that is that right? No, I think um, so. It's probably the other way around. In South Africa, it was, I think, 2001 or 1997, I think, okay. when you when being gay was then legal. I think in the UK, Nikki probably wouldn't know as well, but I think it was, I'm going to say 1964. Okay, got it. So, um, so, you, so you don't mean gay marriage. You mean just being gay. Being was gay. Illegal. Yeah. So was, something... Was, so, 
if something's illegal, that means there's a legal punishment for it. Was what was the legal yeah. punishment? Um, in South Africa. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, the legal punishment was being locked away, um, and the police would do a lot of um, uh, raiding and and. Um, so would there be a trial? Was, oh yes. Yeah. I, I had a. I had somebody I later got to know. They had had been um, on trial and they had been locked away. Um, and, uh, and, it, and that was incredibly cruel um, and, and, and awful, but they were entrapped. They were actually, um, somebody approached them in a park and then took them to their home. And then he's other- Oh, he's they did a sting. They did a room. sting. Mm. Yeah, so they did a sting. So it, that was quite, that was kind of a common thing. Um, I know it was common here in the UK, but that was much earlier in the in in the UK. Oh, yeah. I think by the time I got here, being gay was free and easy. And people who were my own age hadn't really lived through anything. Um, you know, being religious in 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 England is not a you know not a big thing. So um, and so yeah, going through that conversion through therapy and especially being married was so different to everybody else. So yeah, I was told, you know, don't tell people about it. They won't understand, rather just leave it. Don't, don't talk about it. Just learn how to be a gay. Um, and so I had to be kind of educated again about being homosexual. And, um, and so, yeah, there were times five, probably didn't last much before six years after maybe to the early 2000s, there were times that I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh shit, I'm gonna go to hell. Ah, oh, what am I gonna do? Oh, and so, wow. so that did happen. I did actually um, have that kind of trauma where um, I would suddenly think, oh, have I made the right choice? Oh, God. And you know, you joke about, oh, you know, don't go to church, God will strike you. I did have that feeling I went to a wedding. Um, and I had to go into a church and I did look around and I went in. Who's here? Yeah. Mm. Are you here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it took me, it took me a while. And certainly language, so um, certain words, are they still trigger me now? Um, yeah, bless, I find really, really hard. Oh, and please don't say, oh, I'll pray for you. Mm. Uh, I'd rather you didn't. Um, <laughs> so, so Mark, what? what so yeah, I wasn't going to ask, but since you're talking about going to church and looking for, jokingly, if God was there, what is your theistic viewpoint at this time? I think we lost Mark. Oh, uh, I'm sorry I asked that question. I shouldn't have asked that question. Yeah, Clearly. I know. He got pissed at you. And <laughs> Damn. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, hopefully he'll pop back in. I hope so, too. Yeah, I found that interesting when he was talking about, you know, all of a sudden the fear of hell would come back. Oh, we have a troll. Glenda, Glenda's on it. Um, we, yeah, so, because of course, you know, being a helpline volunteer here, that's a very common thing, regardless of if it's, you know, having to do with this subject or any subject, just leaving a religion causes people, even if they rationalize, no, I don't believe in this anymore. It's an emotional thing and people still fear hell for sometimes, unfortunately, very much long after they would even call themselves an atheist. Not everyone, of course, but it happens. 
Yeah, that is something that comes up quite a bit in um, the support groups as well, is this fear of hell and people waking up with the sweats in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, just like what kind of what Mark described. I don't know how I managed to go through a transition without, without that, that happening. I guess I never really believed it very strongly to begin with. Welcome no, back, Mark. I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> we thought we had scared you away. <laughs> No, all of a sudden, the, everything froze, and I was the only one who could move around, and everybody, and I thought, I thought that they say, "Oh my God, it was the rapture, and I was left behind." <laughs> I thought it was my question, Mark. I'm pretty darn I'm sure that uh, you and I'd be hanging out together if, <laughs> if the rapture did happen. Yes, I, I, I like the, the beginning of that question, so I don't mind if you want to ask me that again, and I can. Oh, um, yeah. So I was I was wondering, what is your theistic viewpoint uh, at this point? Like, do you believe in a God or are you not sure at this point? Would you call yourself agnostic? Uh, do you still worry about the hell question? So I, I would say that I'm agnostic. Um, I don't believe that a God could be so cruel. Um, and, and, you know, me being slightly abused as a child and... Um, and as a young adult, uh, it pales in significance when you see the world as, as today um, and what's going in Ukraine. And I don't believe there can be a God, um, or certainly not a God in the sense that um, Christians and Christianity would like us to have um, and believe in when there could be such absolute cruelty that supposedly if he can part the waves, then he can stop the shit. So, um, yeah, I certainly have that. And that helps, actually. I think that helps with some of the PTSD. I, I certainly don't have that fear of hell anymore. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. It, if anything, it would be hell, let me in. Um, mm -hmm. I like it. So, yeah, I like what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think that there was this thing about, you know, that especially, you know, when I was really much younger and I was... Um, you know, I had this thing about, you know, that Jesus can see you ooh, everywhere um, and you're having anal sex. And you think, really, can you look the other way? Can you just look the other way? You don't need to be. You know, I didn't want an audience. I didn't ask you for an audience. So, yeah, I think that there is something about, there is something about um, that eventually you can shrug a lot of it off. But I think it's a concerted effort you have to make to say, actually, you know, I'm just enough of this. Enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be um, terrified for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be, yeah. um, you know, you need to move on and you need to um, kind of that awful thing, get on with it. But you do need to move on from it and, and acknowledge and accept that you may suffer from PTSD. I mean, I, I do it and most of it is now for language. Um, and I have a problematic relationship with some of my family members, including my sister. Um, and, and it's based largely on the um, how they interpret their Christianity um, and say, well, you know, my sister still has that lovely phrase, you know, love the sinner and hate the sin. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And it's just bullshit, really. Um, and she didn't like when I called her out last year on some of her bullshit. Um, in her own relationship, she didn't like it. So she hasn't spoken to me since, and I'm not using any sleep over it. And I think that's the thing. It's just acknowledging that sometimes 
people can inadvertently be abusive who come from the history of it. Right. Um, and uh, they, you know, they need to, you know, I just need to move on. And, um, now, Mark, um, we, we're uh, getting on the topic of PTSD. Um, uh, I, I'm kind of imagining that folks who may have gone through this or folks who experience PTSD, they may not, some of them may not even know that they have it. How, how were you able to kind of first identify that um, you were struggling with, with PTSD yourself? Oh, it was only until five years ago. I hadn't identified it for myself until about five years ago when somebody said to me, you, you reacted odd there. What's that? Oh, uh, but you reacted in a way that I wasn't expecting you to. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, and that made me think that made me sit back and go, you know what, I think I need to use Mr. Google and find out a little bit about, you know, could I have, is there such a thing as religious PTSD? Is there a bit of religious trauma? Does it actually exist? And then, wow. Mr. Google just filled my whole life because there was so much <laughs> to read and so many stories and YouTube is full of people saying, talking about it. And that opened my eyes to, my goodness, I actually, yeah, I do. And so I think the first step was acknowledging, accepting and acknowledging that I do. And then just trying to find ways of working with the triggers so that not every encounter with these blessed words are going to tip me over the edge. You know that I'm that I don't. I'm not, my head's not going to spin off if I see somebody taking Holy Communion. Um, let's so, um, uh, let's back up a little bit. When you are, you know, that it's. I, I hear that you were able to kind of first identify it when you were like when someone pointed it out and you looked introspectively. Um, it, it it may help uh, some other folks out there to kind of identify or or seek out some help. Well, um, if if they understood what you were experiencing as you were kind of yeah. going through this, what emotion would come up, what thoughts would come up, or uh, you know, how, what, was, what was your experience when you were triggered, if, if you don't mind sharing that? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that, um, so I think they're multiple. One of them was mm -hmm. definitely around, if I was having a conversation um, with a family member who is very fundamentalist, um, they, they would want to talk in a certain way, in a certain language. And I would try to break through that. And so I found that I could be really argumentative about Christianity. That I didn't, you know, my reaction wasn't, oh, that's nice for you, I'm so glad. Um, sweet. Uh, but actually was much more aggressive and I could actually become quite shouty and um, oh. very aggressive. And, I read, uh, and that's what somebody else witnessed and said, what happened there? Um, but I realized I, do, I did it all the time. I did it all the time. If, there was, if that button was pressed, it got a reaction. It got a rise. Um, I remember before um, my, my current, my husband now, when we were getting towards, we were talking about getting married, um, that uh, I remember having a conversation with my sister and it was quite aggressive. It was me saying to her that if you, if you do not accept it, I do not want you to do you not welcome at my wedding. Um, so it was quite, I really, yeah, that, that was the thing that I just didn't realize that I was doing in, in such a way that um, 
was not helping the relationships that I had either. That automatically, that you know, shall we shall we pray? Shall we say grace? Shall we pray over our meal? And instead of just going, yeah, whatever, you know, that would that would get a rise out of me by saying, yeah. So um, I think those are some of the things that can really happen. Is that they can they can have a um, that the reaction you have to either words or people's actions that remind you that trigger that really that come from that um, trauma that certainly can make you act in a way you wouldn't normally act and also over a prolonged time so I'll never you know I once had an argument with my sister that went on all day I made a carry on all day I wouldn't let it go she thought that the argument was finished no uh, I'm not finished with you yet and those are things that can happen now not everybody is you know I'm sure that most people are not that aggressive with it but um but even things that make you um if you're not argumentative then you go the other way and people start to use it you become incredibly quiet and withdrawn from it that also can um, be a, a form of um the outward showing of PTSD or you don't want to go to somewhere or you don't want to be with certain people um, or actually it's a huge effort being in some people's company or going to a certain place. Um, you know, for me, you know, churches are fine because none of my experience happened in a traditional church with a steeple. Those are fine. Mine happened in like that looked like a hall <laughs> that, you know, that, that weren't, weren't traditional mm. places of worship. Um, and so, yeah, if somebody said to me, oh, we're going to go to somewhere that's going, they're going to swing their hands in there. Yeah, I think I wouldn't be able to breathe in that environment. It, it would be too much for me. I couldn't go to that kind of service. It would be, it, yeah, it would be so uncomfortable um, and, and quite awful. And so, again, sometimes it's just the feeling, that pit in the stomach as well. If you're starting to identify that you have a number of reactions physical reactions as well, um, then, then, you know, I, I would encourage people to consider if they are suffering with PTSD and actually get some help, which is what I ended up doing. What are some of the um, ways you've managed to kind of cope with or deal with, or dare I say, even eliminate uh, some of these PTSD symptoms? Yeah, humor, humor. Humor. I <laughs> I use, I make fun of it. Um, and I find that really helps actually. It diffuses for me the situation. So, you know, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can come out with some stuff that, yeah, it's not cutting, but it's just, you know, takes the edge off and therefore can stop it, stop something from being um, a nasty situation. Um, and, you know, and making some friends with some priests help sometimes as well, because, yeah, you know, and, and, and not always, I think for me, I tried then not to always hide away from some of the language um, as well. Um, that, that's interesting. So friends with, uh, with uh, what, what denomination priests? Catholic? Church no, of they... England? Church of England? <laughs> no, I think more, more sort of Church of England type. Church of, um, Church of England. Yeah. I have, oh, and what's that? What's uh, are they accepting? I, I think they're very well. 
one is gay himself so he ah. is very accepting um and and the other one is also very accepting i think there there's there's a much more relaxed feeling now especially here in the uk around some some of the churches some are, some not um but yeah there is so i think that it's it's helped with having women in um in church positions as well actually um it starts to break it starts to break down the um that sort of very misogynistic um belief although i've always wondered about um men who like to wear f- <laughs> really let me tell you about mm. There's a science fiction series called Travelers where people come from the future and inhabit the bodies of people who are going to die and from many hundreds of years. And one of the scenes involves a Catholic priest doing an exorcism. And one of these travelers walks by and says, go get a real job. You don't have to wear a dress <laughs> to, to the Catholic priest. Mark, um, do you have any other kind of... Um, uh, like there, there are people who are struggling with this now. who are going through this now. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say to those folks to kind of um, encourage them or uh, give them some hope, give them a light at the end of the tunnel? How, how would you be able to speak to those folks? I think there's something about truly wanting to accept yourself and and discovering who you are. And in order to do some of that, you need to take yourself out the situation because sometimes who you around and where you are and physically where you are. Now you don't have to do what I did. And I got on a plane and traveled thousands of miles to get away from it um, and to start all over. But I think that, you know, I would encourage people, you know, don't, don't hang about the lion's jaws that you could be sucked back in easy because they have a way of being able to suck you in quite quickly. They want to do that as quickly as possible. So the further you get away from it, the more that um, fundamentalist Christianity doesn't like it. But um, but don't hang about it too much. Um, don't try to um, preempt. So I think for me, I, I got away from it. I, I kind of did that run. And then I evaluated afterwards what my belief structure was, what I needed in my life. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joined a few Facebook groups for ex, ex-gay um, people. And some of, the, some of those people still really suffer with this concept of wanting to be loved by God and not knowing where you stand. And, and that can go on for some people, that can go on for a very long time, that can go on for years. For me, it was easier just to move away from it, be as far as I could from it until I got to the stage where actually I felt comfortable um, with that. Got it. Mark, thank you so much um, for spending some time with us this evening and sharing your story. I, uh, you know, I, I felt um, pain and, and uh, I, I felt hurt from what you went through, but in some sense, I also feel a little bit of a hope now that we're kind of sharing this uh, from you sharing this, the bravery that you have for sharing this for other folks who um, uh, work through some of their issues and hopefully to end this, um, I don't see this as being beneficial from what, uh, from the research that's been done, the people I've talked to, but um, is this still going on today? At least these kind of conversion therapies, both in the UK and I know it's happening here in the US. Yeah, I think it's everywhere in the world still. I think some countries have done 
um, you know, great job about banning um, Canada, uh, New Zealand has, uh, I think Australia are in that concept. In, in here in the UK, um, the uh, it's been considered, but actually it's been considered only for children because the belief is um, that as an adult you can make a choice, and that's why I said at the oh, beginning, geez. it's not it's not that straightforward. Um, unfortunately, I cannot get to the um, the minister in charge. Um, and it's, it's a crying shame because I actually live in the same town, the town that she's supposed to, I actually live in her constituency um, and she does not make herself available um, for any conversation around it because she's got it in her head what she thinks. And she's been um, led a lot by um, religious groups because they feel that it's against their, um, get the freedom of expression, their freedom of religion. Um, and there's a multiple groups, those are not just Christian in themselves. Um, and so that this, this is, you know, we, we just got to be really um, aware that, that unfortunately there are people around us who are still subject to it. Um, and even if there is law, they may still be caught up in it. As I say, it, it is not, it's really complex um, as an adult um, going for conversion therapy. And it, as they should really be banned by now. I, I think it's great, actually. I think on YouTube, they've now got the um, Trevor Project advert comes up on all on all people talking about pro that are pro conversion therapy. I think the Trevor Project uh, banner comes up now um, on there. So there's something saying there's a better way, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that should be you know a bit. It should come with a health warning. I mean, it is. It is. Um, yeah, but unfortunately in the UK, we don't have um, a minister who, mind you, um, an opposing minister doesn't believe in it either. So it's not like it's, it's just not understood enough, um, which is terribly sad. Yeah, in the US, I don't, I don't see because of constitutional law that it, they could ever make a federal law. It probably would have to be a state to state thing. Yeah. Especially because yeah. of quote unquote religious freedom. I don't, you know. That would be a tough nut to crack, even if you could pass a federal. I mean, look what's happening in Texas um, you yes. know, for abortion. Mark, um, if you're in the UK um, listening to this, what do you feel that um, people can do to work to get a conversion therapy banned, not only for adults, but for children too? I think definitely um, right to government. Uh, I think that also support um, those that are, because um, there are some charities here in the UK, support those charities. Uh, and, and I think it's also about talking about it. Often that's mm. just in itself is really helpful by talking about the fact that conversion therapy is a wickedness to people who don't know about it. They will stay, and, and you'll find that other, I found a lot of other people go, oh God, I never realized that. And by what you told me, yeah, and then they still start talking to people. So eventually, you know, it becomes something that is not hidden away. Um, and it's, it's, yeah. it's not something that lives in its own closet. Um, because as I say, you know, there is this fear that, um, there is a fear that those of us who've been through what we have been, and especially those of us who they married um, to women uh, or, you know, in the case of a lot of lesbians who marry to men, that actually 
we we don't tell our story enough because we we don't think that um, the LGBTQ community would necessarily understand us. So we try to keep it quiet, but actually the time has come for us now to start to be much more vocal about it. So that, um, I think that's in any country really, is so that those who don't know about it, hear about it and, um, and it becomes something that is discussed. It feels like um, the, this whole culture of keeping things in the closet and um, uh, really only benefits the oppressor, really only benefits the abuser. Yeah. And um, obviously it, it may not be safe for those who have been victims to come out of the closet, but um, the only people who are benefiting from it are the people who are doing the abusing. And that, yeah, um, absolutely. And closets were only ever invented for clothes, right? Uh, I, I attended a conference back in 2017 and one of the speakers talked about the subject and it was from the point of view of America. And as I recall, he gave uh, actual case studies of organizations in the United States which did conversion therapy. And in the ones he pointed out each time, the people running it eventually came out as gay, that they were closeted. Yes. <laughs> yes, I like the fact that when those happen, they kind of hit national, international yeah. news. Yep. So we can, we can all year in it and um, enjoy the story. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, one of the groups I, um, attending, um, they're all full of, um, ex, ex-gay, so they they all proclaimed themselves as ex-gay, and they and they preached ex-gay, and they were part of a whole ex-gay movement, um, and most of those now are are past that, um, and have formed this group, and actually were partook in the the creation of the movie, the Netflix movie called Pray Away, um, that uh, I didn't watch immediately. I did have to take a deep breath and put play on um and watch that that was it was very very is that well, still, had, still available it is still available yeah and i encourage people to to watch that um simply because it will give an insight um into into the life of some of those people so several people in the chat earlier when you were talking about the uh, electroshock treatments in your mouth mm -hmm. were saying this this can't be going on today how long ago was that do you know anything about whether or not those techniques are still in use yeah, I mean, there's the techniques are still definitely in use. Um, and I know that they're in use in the US. I've heard about them. Um, they normally are um, electrodes that are attached to one's genitals. Oh. I say oh. that actually. That I didn't like the mouth idea, but I'll take the mouth. And you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Choose mouth over nuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ask, yeah. Me. Uh, ask me which. Yes. Um, so I think that I think that uh, I th yeah, it definitely it definitely happens to this day. This and this is these are sound like they are belong to a, a Charles Dickens novel, but actually no. They, these yeah, people that, were saying medieval Europe. It sounded like it yeah, was from the Inquisition exactly. time. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> I mean, when that was happening to me, that was um, I was sixteen, so we are heading to the nineteen eighties. But even even to this day. Yeah, these are things that happen. Well, we have a few questions for you here. And um, folks, if you have some questions, please drop them into the chat, both here and over on Discord too. We're monitoring both of those places. Um, you had mentioned an estranged sister. Did she know 
what you were going through at the time with the conversion therapy? Did she know about these electroshock treatments? Yeah, so she didn't. Um, and she, she kind of questioned me on those um, last year. Uh, and, um, and that's, I think, largely because there's six years between us. So she really was a child. She was a little thing um, when I was going through most of the prayer way. Um, she, she only really discovered that my, so she was 19 when my mother died. So she was actually really quite young. And she, um, she didn't realize anything about my mother, you know, herself. So uh, when I think one of my aunts told her um, a couple of years after that, that her mother was fundamentally, she was lesbian. She suddenly went, oh, it makes sense of some of the stuff I witnessed and saw. Oh, I understand now. I didn't understand it as a child, but now I do. So I think she became um, more understanding. However, um, her, she's still very much in, in the mold of, of um, evangelical Christianity and so caught up in that whole life. Um, and she just can't get out of that. She still has this belief that the Bible is true. It's the word of God. It's, it's uttered from God. Hello. Um, <sighs> and then it's not scientifically proved. No, science is wrong. Um, so it makes some of that discussion with her quite difficult. And that's why for now I um, concentrate on other relationships, shall I say. I always have to ask people like that. How did the koalas crawl all the way to Australia with no food? Yes, exactly. When the ark landed. Um, so yeah, another question from the chat from much earlier. Um, you were talking about your one year of marriage. Was there ever a time you thought you were straight uh, after you started the question uh, that you weren't? Maybe like during your year of marriage, did you convince yourself you were or were you trying to convince yourself you were? I think it was more convincing. I don't think there was ever a time in my life that when I, I thought I was straight. I always played straight. Mm. So that, um, I don't know how. <laughs> I'm not. Um, but yeah, I played straight in order to be accepted um, by the other people in the church and also God. Um, and and that, was, that was important to me. Um, although, yeah. I don't know how, because, yeah, especially when I was having um, the relationship with David, then that was most certainly, um, I did not think I was straight. I knew then I really was gay, but I, I had to go deep in myself <laughs> to, to, to have a um, straight relationship. Got it. But I wouldn't say that I was bisexual either. So, I was going. Um, I was just going to ask you that. Like, how, yeah, how would you differentiate that? Yeah, I wouldn't. I, no, I've never been. Yeah, I've never been bisexual. Um, no, I've always been gay. It's just that I learned how to play straight. I think that would be the best way to explain it. Mark, thank you so much again for coming on here and sharing your story and um, um, hopefully helping out some of the people who uh, may be struggling with exactly what you've been through. Really. Um, I really, really appreciate, and your story touches me uh, deep in my heart. Do you have any kind of final thoughts or final words that you want to leave us with before we uh, kind of wrap up the show? I think that the only one is that when, you know, that is talking about um, conversion therapy to other people. And, and, and I think the best way to, you know, the best 
way that we can get this banned is when straight people talk about conversion therapy as being wrong. <laughs> and um, straight people saying, well, why would you want to do that? Why? Mm. It's a, and, and, to, and to be vocal about accepting um, how we accept everybody and how we, um, how we do that. And, and, and that breaks the mold. Um, I was, uh, you know, and, and that being gay is, is, is not the kind of thing that we need to um, be fearful of. I, I've spent the weekend actually working with um, Ukrainian refugees who need homes in the UK. Um, and one of the things that has been um, wonderful to see is that the, the Ukrainian gay community and LGBT community um, because there we have, you know, we've got to find homes and, and places for trans people to live in, in order to give them um, an opportunity because they, obviously we needed, you know, there's some of those need to move out of Ukraine with Russians coming closer because it, it's going to be um, an awful situation for them. And so um, the amount of people here in the UK were open to that. They, they, it didn't matter to them that a lesbian couple, they needed, needed housing. They were people who needed housing. Mm. And so that, that is um, you know, reassuring to see, but I think more people that actually talk about it rather than keep quiet, I think that will be, that will be the tipping edge and, and really get um, conversion therapy um, highlighted and then banned. So you feel like this is going to come down more on the side of public opinion and less on the side of, hey, this just doesn't fucking work. I think both. I think public okay. opinion that it fucking doesn't work. <laughs> so, yeah. I think if we look if we look at things, you know, where in the in the, you know, countries that I've lived in, now public opinion about should gay should same sex attracted people get married, and the answer is yes. Um, it's predominantly yes. I think that um, that if we then it now needs to move on. We we have lots more to do around um, LGBT, and we need. A lot more around trans and we need lots more around conversion therapy as well because I think that it it hurts and, I, and I've talked mostly about um, being a gay man so this is coming from my perspective but of course there's a whole other story around um, trans as well and how and how some of this is also can damage even more so in some cases um, but yeah it's it's a it's an awful fucking thing that needs to be squashed and got rid of like people were saying it sounds medieval <laughs> it sounds medieval but the problem is that, yeah there are an awful lot of um churches out there who preach it who yeah. who feel that it's it's necessary because it, it saves your soul mark thank you so much once again really really appreciate it beautiful yeah. talk and I'm, I'm glad to know your story i'm i'm better because of it thank you Thank you. Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, 
go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering from Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.